sitting in a lovely downtown hotel in Toronto, Walter Trout, who's been kind enough to spend a few minutes with me to talk about his life and music. Let me begin by asking you how the guitar came into your life. Um, I mean, to be really explicit about it, one day my older brother came home. I was about 10 years old, and he said that he, he was 15 at the time, and he said that his girlfriend in high school had given him this acoustic guitar, and he didn't want it, did I want it? And um, I had an acoustic guitar, and I started, it wasn't tuned, but I started, you know, strumming the thing without knowing how to play any chords, and it was just this cacophony, but it felt great. And then while I was strumming, I started singing, and um, I was going at the top of my lungs, and my brother came in and said, Mom says if you don't learn how to tune it and play some chords, she's going to take it. So I had to learn, start learning quickly. What was your connection to music at that point? I was a trumpet player. Okay. Um, I studied the trumpet from the age of six, and I was actually pretty good at it. I liked it a lot, and um, I played it all through high school in the high school orchestra, um, you know, reading the charts, and uh, I played in a marching band, and um, I was in a drum and bugle corps where I played um, bugle solos and marched around with them, and I was in that for a good six years, I guess, and um, I loved music, but um, I thought I was sort of going to attempt to become Miles Davis, but when my brother got me that guitar and I learned three chords, I decided I was going to be Bob Dylan. And then a couple years later, along came the Beatles, and that was the end of that. It was an electric guitar from then on. And did you know that this was what you would pursue as a career? I knew from probably um, age 15, to be honest, that this is what I wanted to do. I didn't know if I'd be able to, but by the time I was a senior in high school, um, at age 17, um, I actually dropped out of high school and told the, the counselor, I'm going to be a blues guitar player. So which, was a blues guitar player at that point already? I was going to be a blues guitar player, and I was in a little town in South Jersey, and the high school guidance counselor had never heard that before. He'd heard a lot of reasons why kids were dropping out or why they were failing in their grades, but when I walked in, it's, well, I'm going to be a blues guitar player. Um, he didn't know how to answer. And the funny thing was, some years later, I played in Philadelphia with canned heat, and I went back to the high school and he was still there. And I walked in and said, I did it. It was kind of cool. Can I ask you what your image of a blues guitar player was back then? Michael Bloomfield. Okay. That was my image of a blues guitar player. There was, you know, you had Bloomfield, you had Eric Clapton. You know, I had the John Mayall album with Eric Clapton. Um, Jimi Hendrix had come out. Um, but to me, it was Michael Bloomfield. And it's funny, I, I read an interview two days ago with Buddy Miles, who's, of course, gone now. But they said to him, of all the guitar players you played with, 
Hendrix Santana, who was the best guitar player, and he said Michael, Michael Bloomfield. Wow. Did you ever get a chance to play with him or meet no. him? No? No, I never did. So at one point I read that um, you were playing in a, I presume it was a rock band, but maybe it was a blues rock band, and then you were invited to, or your friend asked a blues band if you could join them. And so you went over there to play with them, and this was the band who used to back up Finest Tasby and a, a bunch of other. Okay, California. yeah, you've been reading, you've been doing your homework. Is that wrong? Because sometimes no, you that's stuff. great. I'm glad you okay. you know instead I, of I, saying who are you and why should I interview you, you <laughs> no, know, no, I've no, had no. that happen. Well, I mean, there's an image that I have of Walter Trout, who is this amazing guitar player, more blues rock. But when I read that, it occurred to me that you have played with the real deal blues guys early on in your career. Okay, I was playing in a club band in Costa Mesa, California, and um, we were a cover band. We were working steady. We had a good gig, but we did songs by the Eagles. We did songs by the Stones and the Beatles, and um, we did some Santana, and we did some Motown. We did a lot of country rock. We were doing Merle Haggard and Buck Owens and Hank Williams and we did a very, you know, varied cross-section of stuff. And every once in a while, I would get to do um, a Muddy Waters song, you know. And my friend, Brant Bindley, said to me one day, there's this group of kind of older black guys, and they play on the pier in Redondo Beach, and they're playing old-school blues, and I asked him if I bring my friend up, can he sit in? And... Um, so I went with him on a Sunday afternoon, and there they were, and he said, this is my friend Walter, and they were like, oh, we don't know, and, and Brandt goes, look, you told me he could play, we drove here, it's, a, it's an hour drive, and they said, okay, he can play a song. I played a song. They said, well, hey, he can play another song. I played another song. They said, stay up here for the set. At the end of the set, they said, you wanna join the band? And it was Finest Tasby on the bass. It was Deacon Jones on Hammond B3. It was basically John Lee Hooker's backup band, the Coast to Coast Blues Band, but, you know, minus John Lee Hooker. And this was their Sunday afternoon gig. Do you remember the song you played? No. Do you remember the feeling you had playing with Oh, it was awesome. It was awesome because I was playing with the real guys. And you could that feel that immediately. I could feel that immediately. And I could tell that um, I had to, to the best of my ability, fit in with what they were doing. I couldn't get up and do a Jimi Hendrix feedback solo. It wouldn't work, you know. Right. And um, so I ended up joining the band. And with, with those guys, I embarked on this two-year-long um, odyssey of playing with John Lee Hooker and Big Mama Thornton. We did a lot of shows with Percy Mayfield. Um, we played with Lowell Folsom. Um, I, I can't remember them all. Um, Joe Tex, the soul singer. O.B. Wright, the soul singer. Um, what did that experience teach you as a guitar player? Like, What did you learn? Man, from I learned so much from those guys. Um, I learned how to, a lot of about playing spontaneously because they were really, um, there was no set list and there were a lot of times Finus 
who was sort of the lead singer in the band when when we weren't backing up those you know those stars and we were doing gigs on our own as the finest hasby band or the coast to coast blues band finest would turn around he'd say key is c and he'd count to four and off you go you know and um i really learned the blues from those guys you know i i had been dabbling in it with the club bands I was in, but all those bands were cover bands. That's how we worked. Mm-hmm. We worked all the time, but you had to be a cover band to play in the clubs. And now with these guys, um, I wasn't making any money, but I was getting this incredible education. You know, did that worry you? I mean, you have you, here. You are working with some great blues names, and yet they're not. It's it's a tough living for them. And you're in a band that doesn't make a lot of money. Did that matter, or was it didn't just matter? A- no, I worked day jobs to subsidize my um, blues education with those guys. But I with did. the goal that it would be something bigger in the future. Oh yeah, yeah, and I, I knew it would be. I knew it would lead me to other places, and it did. Because one night we were playing um, as the finest Tasby band at a club called the Lighthouse in Hermosa Beach. And some guys came in and sat and listened all night. And at the end of the night, they came up and said, "Um, we're canned heat and we're looking for a guitar player. Do you want the gig? There I went. Suddenly I was with canned heat. And I knew that would lead, you know. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm with canned heat. We opened up for John Mayall. And John Mayall said to me, hey, man, I want your phone number. And a little later got the call you want to come join the Blues Breakers. Um, It was kind of this evolution from one band to the other, but I knew that playing with those guys, it was not about money, and playing blues was never about money. I met B.B. King when I was 16, and I told him I was trying to learn the blues, and he said, well, if you want to play music for money, don't play the blues. I remember him saying, he said, you play the blues because you have to. Mm-hmm. It's not about money, you know. What what was it about the blues that connected you with it? Just the raw emotion, the the possibility of self-expression that it affords the player. It's just very elementary in its form, but it, it gives you this incredible foundation to play over to express yourself you know it's the basis of everything and it was just the the pureness of it and the emotional impact of it it's not about technique it's about expressing yourself it's about expressing a human emotion you know and that appealed to me there was no glitz or glamour about it it's raw down and dirty nitty-gritty stuff. Um, so was it the same playing with Finest Tasby, playing with John Lee Hooker, or playing behind John Lee Hooker, playing with Cant Heat, and playing with John Mayo? Did you, was the, your idea of the blues pretty well consistently the same throughout those different phases, or would you say it kind of changed a little bit between? Well, what I learned in those years of being a sideman was you have to, to be a good sideman, you have to, attempt to emotionally and mentally tap in to the vision of the person you're backing up 
when you're when you're backing up finest Tasby and Deacon, you have to fit in with what they're attempting to say. When you get in canned heat, it's the same thing, you know. Especially with Mr. Mayall, um, I was very aware of the tradition of the guitar players that had preceded me, and um, you know, I got up the, with him the first night and was doing these songs that he had recorded with Eric Clapton, and I played the Clapton solos note for note. And at the end of the night, he said, I want you to be Walter. I don't want you to be Eric Clapton out there. I hired you because I like the way you play. And that freed me up. But I still had to be a part of what he was trying to express and what he was trying to say with his songs, you know. I was very aware of fitting, fitting in and being just one part of the sum of all the parts. And that's really um, important. That's the ultimate importance if you're going to be a side man. You know, you go out there to be a member of a group. And um, that's why I, th- I was very successful as a side man. You know, I went from one to the other rapidly. And that, I think that's the reason why. So how do you get your own voice as a guitar player while being a sideman? Like how do you develop that Walter Trout style sound? I think you for me it's just a matter of kind of looking into myself and playing what my heart and my soul tells me to play, what I hear in my head, you know. I mean Billy Gibbons has a quote he said learn to play what you want to hear and um, that's what I'm trying to do I I want to hear somebody playing blues rock with passion and with fire you know and that so that's what I'm trying to do and um, it's a never-ending process I think I not as good today hopefully as I'll be in six months I hope I'll be better than I am I don't want to just start declining here. I, I want to keep growing as a musician. And um, the only thing that holds one back as a musician really is your imagination, mm-hmm. what you can think up to play, you know. I mean, I always wonder about that because you've done many, many albums and you always have to come up with a new idea every year or two and, and try not to repeat yourself and also keep it interesting for yourself and for your fans. Is that a difficult thing to do is to come up with ideas over the years as far as you mean writing writing or just coming up with a concept for a new album you know sometimes I I get to where like I finish an album and I go okay I, I don't have anything left to say here I've said it and um, a year later it's time to do another one and I sit down and I go I don't know, I, I don't have anything left. And then I swear I hear the voice of my mom and she says, she says, Walter, you wanted to be a musician. Quit belly aching and make some music. All you gotta do is make some music. It's easy for you, do it. And I swear I hear that and I go, okay, I gotcha. And, then out it comes. Did you, you ever know. doubt being a musician? Did you ever, was there ever a time where you thought, oh, maybe this isn't what I want to do? No, never. 
Never. Sometimes I look back and, you know, go, wow, I'm 65 now, and, and this is it. This is what I'm doing. It's, uh, it's a little late to decide to uh, go into politics or uh, become a lawyer or something here, you know. Things that I thought about when I was a kid, you know. It's a little late to become a, a Broadway actor or something. All these things that went through my head when I was 10. But um, no, it's, it's, um, it's what I do and it's, that's what my life will be. Um, so you were talking, we're going back a little bit, and you were talking about you, you had plans that it would always grow and get bigger and bigger. At one point or another, you decided that you wanted to be a solo artist. How difficult was that choice? Well, it was a little scary because I had to quit Mr. Mayall's band, and that was an incredible gig. I mean, as a sideman in the blues world, that's the pinnacle. Where are you going to go? Uh, that's the top. You could say, oh, well, you can get a gig with Buddy Guy or B.B. King. That would maybe be on a higher level a little bit. But with those guys, you're going to play chords all night and stand in the back. With Mr. Mayall, he features you. He nurtures you. He develops you. Um, he puts you out there in front of people. He lets you sing. He, he lets you play. At the end of every song, he yells your name over the mic. And you either sort of stay with him or you take a step down and go get a different gig as a sideman because any gig after that is pretty much a step down, right? Or you go solo. Um, and I knew that that was my next step. I, I just knew it. Um, when I moved to California from New Jersey to seek a musical career, I wanted my original intention was to have my own band, to write my own songs, to front the band. I even had a band in New Jersey um, that, you know, was a four-piece with keyboards, just like I have now, and I wrote all the songs for the band. I, um, so I went out there with this in my mind, and I started getting these sideman gigs, and they were great, but um, I had to make the decision if I really want to follow my dream here, I have to quit Mr. Mayall. And um, that was scary because um, I could probably still be with him. I made great money. I traveled the world first class, stayed in great hotels, did big shows, you know, and I started off, um, you know, it was unknown what's going to happen. And he did say to me when I left, he said, I'll support you, good luck, but if it doesn't work out for you, don't call me in a year and say, I want my gig back because I'll have somebody else. Mm -hmm. And once you're gone, you're gone. You're not back. And I had to really think about it, and I said, I'm gone. So throughout the years that you worked with all these amazing musicians, what's the greatest lesson that you, were, you learned from that experience of being a band leader? Wow. Well, you know, Mayall is one of the world's great band leaders, and he has a certain sort of technique he uses, and I studied it for five years with him. And I've tried to sort of um, emulate that in my own band. Um, 
but a lesson I've learned as a band leader, that's hard to say, you know. I, I can tell you John's parting words to me as I left his hotel room and I said, no, I'm quitting. He said, okay, Walter, welcome to the wonderful world of band leading. <laughs> With a whole lot of sarcasm thrown in there. And, and I got a good that laugh. And rang in your ear many times. After. Yeah, sure. It's... Um, it's not always easy. You're dealing with personalities, you know. Um, it can be very trying at times, but the rewards are incredible. Um, when you go out and you do a great gig and you tear it up and you get three encores, and um, that's the most fulfilling, beautiful feeling in life for me. And did know? it really feel like a step down, a few steps down when you left John Mayo? Uh, well, success-wise, you know, I mean, I did my first tour of Europe with my band, and we had, you know, 10 people every night, you know. Um, so you're like, okay, I'm starting at the bottom. I got to work my way up, but that's what I did. I, I never gave up. I never quit. Um, one thing I, we used to talk about this in John's band, and that was that he was... Um, I don't know what the word is, but nothing stopped him. Nothing got him down. He was determined to go out there and, you know, have a career as a blues man. And, um, you know, there were times in his band, his career was kind of at a low point when I joined him. And uh, he was determined to work his way back up. And... Um, you know, he was, to coin a phrase, as I called an album of mine, he was relentless. We're out there, we're working hard, and, and I learned that from him, the, the work ethic. You go out there and you work hard. You, you work hard for every fan you get, for every album you sell, you know. Can you elaborate on that? Like, what is working hard? It's putting 100% into your gig. Working hard is doing gig after gig after gig, maybe being incredibly tired, having no sleep, eating crap food, but you go out on that stage and you give 150%, whether there's five people or 5,000 people, and you play you know, show after show, you record, you write, and whatever the music business throws at you where you get ripped off, you get vilified, you get reviews that are horrible, you just keep going in the face of it all and you do not stop. And it's easy to, to have the belief in yourself during this time when you're playing to 10 people? Sometimes you can lose your belief in yourself, but you don't stop. You know, I, I gotta say that any setbacks I had made me more determined. Because I, I did believe I had something to share. I had something to give. And I believed there was an audience that would appreciate what I had to give. Um, but I had to, as I say, work hard to get it out there. Work hard to get people to, to even hear you, you know. I think in some ways it's a little easier now with the Internet for bands to be heard. Mm-hmm. But back then it was... Um, you went out, and I called it the Luther Allison technique. You just toured and toured and toured, and every night you went out and you did your very best. And if you went into a town and you had 10 people, 
You come back six months later and you have 30 people. You come back six months later and you have 200 people. You build it, you know. And I think it's maybe with the internet and YouTube and stuff, it's a little easier for bands to be heard, mm -hmm. you know. But back back when I started, none of that existed. And at what? How long did it take you to to a point where you thought, "Wow, I'm I'm getting a following." Things are well, I was very lucky in that on my second album in 1990 um, in Europe, I had a gigantic hit song, like an MTV hit. And it, um, you know, I have a chart at home from the Netherlands um, from back then that there's me, and then there's Madonna, and then there's Bon Jovi, and then there's Brian Adams. I only did that once, but I did it, and it got me a large audience, like almost instantaneously. And uh, even though I was just a one-hit wonder, I've been able to hold on to a, a good bit of that crowd, you know. And when something like that happens, how do you view yourself? Because whatever you're doing is the same as it was before then. And I don't know if you thought that one song was that much more special than anything else you've done, but, but all of a sudden... The song comes out, it gets some views, and people are showing up all the time. And you're really probably no different than be before. Well, no. I, you know, when I was first starting out in California and I was playing around little bars, um, we used to get fired all the time. And if I can't tell you how many times I heard this quote nobody wants to hear this shit get out of here from bar owners and uh and i think right now i'm i'm playing the same as i did back then i haven't changed it i'm even doing some of the same songs i did back then you know i do a song the train is coming an eddie boyd song um i was doing that song in jersey in 69 you know um but you just keep going, man. And and they've sort of kind of come around to my approach to things, you know. I know that for a lot of these sort of blues purists, I'm very much over the top, but I don't care. Mm -hmm. I, I just play from my heart, and what comes out is what comes out. I'm not going to censor it, you know. And, you, and you've been doing this successfully for many years. So come a few years ago where you become ill and you have some health issues and that playing music becomes or touring becomes a difficult thing tell me what that was like for a person who dedicated his whole life to playing music and you know to this this is your dream that you're living yeah well that that was um difficult it was rather horrific because i started developing really bad equilibrium problems I started, um, I had chronic fatigue. I had absolutely no energy. And I also got to where I was getting incredible, excruciating cramps in my hands when I was trying to play. And um, the last tour that I did really um, in Europe, um, I really just did it because I have to say I really thought I was probably going to die and I wanted to leave some money for my wife and my kids. I felt like I had to try to take care of them. Um, but every night on stage it was 
terrifying. I didn't know if I'd make it through. I couldn't play any bar chords. I couldn't bend strings. I didn't have the strength. And if I tried to bend a string, my whole hand would cramp up, and then I couldn't play at all. Um, but uh, I got through the tour. I did a lot of it sitting on a chair. And, um, and not only you know was I getting these cramps, but before the tour I had fallen down on the sidewalk and cracked a couple ribs, so I had cracked ribs. I had ascites, which is where you swell up with fluid from your liver. And um, it was pretty horrible, you know. I was watching that clock, and uh, as soon as it, as soon as I had filled the contract, we stopped, you know. And I thought to myself, God, I made that, I made it through. I hope I don't um, collapse and crash and burn tomorrow night, but. I have to do this again tomorrow night, and I dread it. And all of that is gone now. I look forward to it now. And then you went through a number of months of, I guess, waiting for a liver transplant. And it was pretty close to not make. You were pretty close to not making it. Like you had some very desperate hours. Oh yeah, I had desperate months, and I had a lot of times that I sort of really sort of wanted to go but my wife would not allow that she would tell me no you have to stay and you have to fight and she fought for me and she gave me the strength she inspired me to stick around in the face of great pain and great um, really heavy illness and being on the verge of death any minute and people dying around me and the liver ward and um, there was a lot of days of despondency and a lot of days of it seemed hopeless mm -hmm. you know was music in your life at that point at all no all there was at that point was trying to get through the next two minutes of my life mm -hmm. um, trying to make it through um, you know it was minute by minute trying to stay alive. And I remember telling my wife that if I made it, if I survived and I could never play again, I would try to learn to live with that as long as I could be her husband and I could be a father to our three sons. Um, I never really thought that I would play again. I was reading the liner notes in my research of the live album you did in Tampa. And I believe you were sick before then as well. And I believe you quoted something your wife said about going on and the strength that she gives you. Tell me about that relationship you have with your wife. Well, I'm going to lose it here. She's the love of my life. Um, she's my best friend. She's the mother of our three children. She has managed my career for 24 years now. She took over when I was at a point where in order to pay our rent, I had to pawn guitars. I had had all my money stolen from me. That huge hit I had in Europe, I, ne I didn't make 10 cents. It was all stolen by management, 
by unscrupulous booking agents, especially an unscrupulous manager, had taken everything. She figured it out, what he was doing. She showed me in black and white on the accounting. And um, we had him come over and we confronted him and he said, I got all your money and I got it in a bank in Mexico and tough shit, you know. Um, She took over at that point and everything I have achieved since we were pawning my Martin guitar once a month when it was rent time, um, everything I've achieved is due to her hard work. I'm still playing the same, as I said. I haven't changed what I do. I just have somebody running the show who um, has put incredible energy and focus and determination into, you know, developing my career. So my relationship with my wife is, um, you know, it's hard to explain, Mm -hmm. but she's everything to me. So you pull out of this thing, thanks to your wife and your fans as well, who, who are very supportive of, yeah. of everything. Um, at what point did you know you were out of the woods? At what point did you think, okay, things are looking better now? Wow. Well, I had the transplant two years ago yesterday. Yes, yesterday was my two-year anniversary. And um, there's this kind of hype and myth they tell you, oh, you get the transplant and you come out of it and your body's working great and you just feel awesome and it don't work like that. I don't want to discourage anybody. The transplant has worked wonders on me, but um, when you come out of it, it has kicked your ass. They have ripped you open and ripped the organ out of your body and stuffed another one in there. And um, it's, it's a trauma, you know, and then there's complications. Everybody that I've met that has had a transplant, they, there's complications and you have to go back in. And they, uh, So it took months. I couldn't walk. I really had a hard time speaking English. I had gone through a phase where I didn't recognize my kids. Um, when I got back home, um, I had the transplant May the 26th. I, I was still in the hospital and in a physical therapy program in Omaha. Um, I got home the 1st of September. So you can tell it was a good amount of months it took me before I could even get home. When I got home, I was still using either a walker or a cane to walk. Um, I couldn't play at all. So I, I began practicing hard on the guitar, lots of physical therapy, working with weights. Um, she'd take me out and walk me, you know. It was like, uh, okay, Walter, I'm going to walk you now. And so almost like she'd put a leash on my neck and drag me down the street. And uh, um, it was hard work, but it was worth it, you know. It was worth it. I mean, and I could see that. It was like, wow, if I, I'm, I can survive here. This is unbelievable, you know. So at what point did you think, I'm out of the woods? And was it um, when you got home, or? I don't think I'm out of the woods yet. I think when you have a transplant, you're never out of the woods. you got to take care of yourself. 
you don't suddenly sit down, have a line of blow, a fifth of jack, and, uh, you know, uh, you, I, you know, you, you take care of yourself. Um, but I look but, at you. But as far as, as feeling good, it took me about a year. And, and any surgeon or doctor um, in that line of work will tell you it's going to take you about a year. And I was just um, checked up by my doctor at UCLA two weeks ago. And um, he said, it's two years. Uh, you know, I said, yeah, two years. And he said, another half a year, you're going to even feel better than you feel now. You know, it, it takes a long time, but it takes about a year till you're, you're feeling pretty darn good, you know, but it takes work. Mm-hmm. And you're looking pretty darn good. Well, I had lost a lot of weight, but I've certainly put it back, and I could probably lose a little bit of what I have put on, you know. But um, when I got sick, I was at 230, and I went down to 110. I lost more than half my body, you know. So when you start playing again, are you still the same player, or are you a different player now? I think I'm a better player. I think I have more to say. Um, I have more to put into it. Um, I can still play completely over the top, and uh, you know, as the, some music critics say, you know, totally tasteless. I can still do that, but but every note that I play, I, it has more meaning to me now than it did before, and I've realized now that there were times in the past. Um, that I was taking it for granted. I'd be up there with John Mayall or I'd be up there with my band 10 years ago and just doing all these shows and it was here comes another gig and there were nights I'd be up there, uh, you know, I wonder what's on HBO and, uh, you know, I can't wait to get off stage so I can have some Pop-Tarts or something. And, uh, you know, it, it, it's like... I. I taking it for granted it comes easy or here's another gig here's the same song i i don't feel that anymore i it was taken from me <laughs> and i realized what it means to be able to do it again and um you know my contracts say 90 minutes i i, I since i've been back i've not done one show under two hours because i'm enjoying it i'm having a great time you know What's the greatest lesson you learned from this experience? The beauty, the fragility, and the sanctity of life and how fragile it is and how easy it can be taken. And um, to not take any breath for granted, you know, any moment of the day for granted. I'm really enjoying myself in a way that I never did before. And also a lot of things, little things that sort of used to really overwhelm me and get me kind of pissed off and stuff, I, I just don't care anymore. This guy's selling more records than me. I don't give a shit. I used to. Like, how come? How come that guy, he's got more? I don't care. I got a career, I have a family. You know, it is what it is, and I'm happy as a pig in shit. It's, it's an amazing story, and, and thank you so much for taking this time. 
to share your, your life with me. And um, I'm truly honored to meet you and, and talk to you about what you've gone through. Thank you very much. Oh, well, th thanks for having me, man. I hope I didn't babble too incoherently. <laughs> no, you're wonderful. Oh, thanks. <laughs> Thank you very much. <laughs>